Dead Bod Rap Pod. Hello, everybody. This is Nate LeBlanc, the show's producer and co-host, sitting in for my fellows, David Ma and Damone Carter. We're here on a Monday for a special mini episode of Dad Bod Rap Pod on the amazing, spectacular, must-see documentary, Summer of Soul. Um, we've got a great interview with the movie's producer, Joseph Patel, today. Um, Joseph is a longtime music journalist and a friend of friends and someone we've been wanting to talk to for a while. He was also involved with Soul Sides crew, which is, you know, a huge touchstone for us, which we get into a little bit towards the end of the show. But today we're here to talk about Summer of Soul. Catch it in theaters, catch it on Hulu, catch it however you can. It's truly must-see. And, uh, you know, we don't cover a ton of soul music here on the show, but we're all huge fans of the music and grew up listening to stuff like this and still very interested in things like this. So we wanted to bring you this special segment. Also like to take a moment to invite Amir Questlove Thompson. If you happen to hear this, we'd love to talk to you about your storied career and of course the film on Dad Bod Rap Pod. If you happen to catch this, let's let's get in touch. That'd be amazing. All right, so let's talk about Summer of Soul for a minute. Um, it's a music documentary, a concert film, uh, a piece of history. And um, to kind of set the stage for you guys, um, I asked David and Damone to contribute each a tweet-length review of the film. So here is a tweet-length review of Summer of Soul from music journalist David Ma, who's written extensively on soul music in Wax Poetics, The Guardian, many other places, and just a huge music head in general. Packed with mostly unseen footage, Summer of Soul was a joyous and spellbinding celebration of black culture, a joyous concert film, and sobering snapshot of lost American history. At best, it's a time capsule that draws that shows how racism can marginalize even the biggest of cultural moments. At worst, it's possibly the greatest concert film ever made. So high praise from our man David Ma there. Next up is the tweet leaked review from Damone Carter, a very soulful person who grew up using, hearing this music in his home. See Summer of Soul. Rub it on your gums. Put it in your veins. This is an essential piece of black history, which is to say, American history. Quite possibly the greatest concert film ever made. So you're uh, seeing a kind of consensus emerge here. Um, we are huge on this movie and we're not the only ones as you'll hear um, in the interview with Joseph Patel um, it's just being rapturously received by audiences everywhere and the kind of film establishment I would not be surprised if Quest and Joseph are on stage at the Oscars next year accepting the award for best documentary so let's get into it this is our interview with Joseph Patel producer of the must see extravagant extraordinary special film summer of soul dad bod rap pod every week we have conversations with people who are moving and shaping hip-hop culture this week is no different joining us in zoom we have acclaimed film producer joseph patel whose new documentary is the greatest music documentary of <laughs> all time sorry not to be embarrassing joseph oh. welcome to the program man how you doing thank you thank you guys for having me yeah, we're uh, we're big fans of the doc. Obviously, we'll definitely dig into that. But I wanted to ask a question kind of just selfishly because I've never spoken to a actual movie producer before. Um, two part question. Uh, what is what does a producer do on a movie and how did you get uh, into this line of work? 
Well, it's funny because this is my first feature. So mm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is, uh, it's a new experience for me. I mean, it, I think the, I, I started producing video in 2004. Mm-hmm. I was working at MTV. I came in as a writer. Six months after that, I did a piece on the roots. The roots factor very crucially through a couple of different career points for me. I did a piece on the roots. They were recording a new album. I went down with a producer at MTV to do the story. I pitched the story. I did the interviews. I told him what to shoot. I came back. I wrote the script. We edited it. It aired with his name as producer, my name nowhere to be found. And I said, well, why are you the producer if I did all this stuff? He's like, well, you what you actually did is producing. Mm. And I was like, oh, I want to do that because it was just a different form of storytelling for me. And so I did short form video news pieces there. Then I ended up six months later doing a TV series I created called My Block. Mm-hmm. And then I went various jobs ever since I've done like video pieces and profiles and music videos and commercials and and this is my first feature film but what i tell people the producer does is you are responsible for the story from conception to completion Mm. so it's everything from finding the right director to getting the right writer to locations to so and so needs red twizzlers at two in the morning (laughs) in order for them to be functional on camera the next day that's your job so Mm. even if you're not physically the one doing it you are responsible for it. So I, that's that's sort of my shorthand answer. The producer is, is, is responsible from conception to completion. On movies, I think it's different. On documentaries, I think it's different from how it is on scripted films. But generally, it's the people that, that get the thing made and get it done. My, my role on this film, though, Summer of Soul, is a little different in that I, I was a producer in sort of the nuts and bolts way of... Like, you know, how are we going to shoot this? How do we find the people that went to the festival? Releases, research, all that stuff. But also somewhat of a creative collaborator for with Amir because, um, you know, he had never directed a film before. He is a natural storyteller, um, but, but it was a real collaborative effort. So I like to think of my role more as a creative producer. Thank you for that, man. I really appreciate that. Um, you That's know, I'm very, sure- very, very long-winded answer, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what we're here for. And, um, you know, I'm sure we're going to be jumping around a little bit with your career and different career arcs and stuff. But just, you know, just watching the documentary, I what hit me the most was just obviously all the epic footage, right? From from Nina to like Stevie starting off with the drums. Now, so I just wanted to ask you, like, of all this crazy footage, like, which of it struck you the most where you're just like in awe when you first saw it? I mean, all of it, just, just, its mere, just its mere existence was, was, was left me awestruck, right? Like when they, when, when the person who approached me about this was like, did you know about this music festival in Harlem in 1969, took place across six weekends, 300,000 people went, same summer as Woodstock, Stevie Wonder, Mahalia Jackson, Sly and the Family Stone, Nina Simone, like the list goes on. And I'm just like, this never happened. I would, we would have heard about it right? Mm-hmm. No, it happened. And not only did it happen, but someone shot the whole thing. Oh, probably one person with a camera, right? Home video camera, 16 millimeters. No, four camera shoot, professional TV producer, 
it's all it's all there and i'm like i don't i don't know really skeptical <laughs> take a look at the footage and you're like okay this is incredible and then the next artist comes on you're like wow this is incredible and then it, it keeps going and you're just like how how does this exist and no one really knows about it not only the footage but the event itself how do we as a society even like a music nerd like me and then an even greater music nerd like amir not know that this happened that's that's the general awestruckness of it all um i mean there's i have favorite parts a lot of them are in the film um you know we 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 did obviously it's 40 hours of footage the film is two hours long it's not even a straight concert film so there's a right. lot that didn't go in but some of my favorite things that are in the film are like the stevie drum solo is the first thing amir wanted to do from the beginning the first idea he had where it was like yeah this is his film a lot of people don't know stevie was a could drum like that he was nobody knew he was nice like that on the drums right um Mahalia Mavis is the emotional center of the film. The fact mm -hmm. that Mahalia Jackson passes the torch literally to the young Mavis Staples in a Harlem audience, uh, in front of a Harlem audience. And, and we were, we've been deprived of that footage in that moment for 52 years is crazy. I really love the gospel stuff. Um, gospel music is not music that I would say that I am knowledgeable or fluent in or a fan of generally. Um, but in 69, gospel is emerging out of the churches into mixing with more secular sounds. And you get some really crazy stuff. You know, Oh Happy Day is basically Pharrell's Happy for 1969. Okay. Um, you know, uh, Clara Walker and the Gospel Redeemers are doing psych rock trance-inducing gospel covers or gospel versions of like popular soul songs. Um, Professor Herman Stevens and the Voices of Faith are the, they're the gospel group in the white suits and the blue shirts. And like, there's one singer that looks like a, uh, she looks like Biz Marquis is what we, we always called her when we referred to her in the footage. And then at the end, there's this guy who's going dumb like Mac Dre would like in the, and it's just so, it's like it, this, this, yeah, I, the whole thing is endless. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I read a little bit about the, some of the um, difficulties that you had making this during COVID and, uh, you know, the interviewing process with Mavis Staples and things like that. Can you just shed a little bit more light on perhaps some of the um, impediments that you dealt, had to overcome uh, making this during COVID? Yeah, like, so I think we started on the film in 2018, end of 2018, um, generally started like into pre-production and research and then started pre-production officially in 2019. And, you know, we had shot a bunch of stuff through February of 2020. And then we had a, a, a last batch of interviews to do in March of 2020. And they were key interviews. They were Charlene Hunter Galt and Mavis Staples and Stevie Wonder hadn't been done yet. And, and it was a, a last batch of interviews and then everything gets shut down. And so we, Charlene Hunter Galt was actually on a Monday after the Friday where everything shut down. Mm -hmm. And I was still like arguing with the production company bosses to like, let me drive down to Florida and do this interview with her. And they were like, look, you can do that, but she's, you know, she's elderly or I should say, maybe that sounds, I don't know, maybe that, maybe, maybe she's that's an not, elder. 
it's it's that's a little pejorative of a word but she's an elder she's at risk don't put her at risk and i was like yeah okay so we did a phone interview with her and then we we decided to spend some time editing with what we had and just leave blank pockets for things that we knew were coming in future interviews we figured a few weeks couple months we'll we'll have some clarity on the pandemic and we'll know what to do we didn't quite have the clarity of it being resolved so we had to get creative and that's and, and this it's it's interesting like from a production standpoint people came up with really creative solutions somehow you people figured out how to shoot remotely through zoom right so you have an expensive camera and an expensive lens on one end and then you don't even have to go to set you're looking at the frame through zoom and that was that that so we ended up doing that we did some interviews outdoors because it was summertime um mavis was the only exception where her and her manager basically were like, listen, there's no incentive for her to even take a risk to be in the presence of anybody. Mm-hmm. So, and I, you know, and, and I would say the same thing if it were my, my people, right? Uh, my family or someone, or my, uh, someone, someone I, I managed or, or, or even myself, like I would not take that risk. But she, this moment between her and Mahalia Jackson was so important to her in her life and her career that she, we, she, she was willing to let us drop a sanitized microphone uh, delivered by our sound engineer in a hazmat suit to her apartment complex and, 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 and walk her through how, how to do, set it up. She, I mean, she knows how to set up a microphone, but how to lo- then log on to Zoom and do the interview so we could record at least the audio. Um, but yeah, it forced us to get really innovative with how we shot the remaining interviews, but also how we edited, right? Our editor was editing remotely from upstate New York. And um, usually you're in the room with each other and you're able to, to give notes and, and have feedback and have, hey, Amir, come in here and watch this cut. We weren't able to do that. So we used a software program called Evercast that simulates being in the room together where I could see what my editor had on screen. And we were also on Zoom at the same time. So we could, I could say, oh, he'd show me, hey, what do you think of this? And I'd could give him notes in real time. So that kind of saved us. But it's funny, we didn't, we didn't, we weren't able, we made, we finished the movie during the pandemic. So we weren't able to actually watch this all in a room together. Um, some of us watched it but as, a, as a team that made this film, we weren't able to, to watch it in a room together. And we certainly didn't see it on a big screen until um, very late in the process, I think like April or May. That's incredible. Thank you for uh, kind of giving us that glimpse behind the scenes. Um, uh, these are all too long answers. Let me know. It's all good, man. <laughs> Just be yourself, please. Uh, we, we like to be a home for nuanced conversation. Okay, uh, need. Uh, so uh, there's so many places I want to go here, but I guess the main thing, if this is the only chance we ever have to get to talk about this, is there, is there anything you can share about I understand that the footage was in a vault for 50 years. Why was it in a vault for 50 years? Like, did the person who shot it just not have the right connections? Was the was there just like a, in a every network and every production company ever passed? Did he only solicit it right when he first had it fresh? Like, do you understand what I'm asking? Can you give mm-hmm. us a little bit on that? So I think it's a, you know, look, in the, the film itself says that the footage hasn't been seen in 50 years right mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is technically I would, I would say largely true it's nothing in the film is inaccurate there a couple of things have leaked on youtube through the years right um uh, a little bit of the nina simone performance was licensed for 
the Nina Simone documentary, but out of 40 hours, largely you can say it hasn't been seen in 50 years. Um, you know, Hal Tolchin shot this um, in 1969 on spec. N the city had come together with Tony Lawrence and come together with Maxwell house general foods was like, we need to shoot how wants to shoot this. We're going to shoot this. Hal is an experienced TV producer. He shoots it on four cameras, runs it off in, into two decks, very innovative way. He shot, shot it on two inch videotape. It's in these gigantic two inch reels. Each one is like 20 pounds each. That's right. um, beautiful Tiffany blue cases. Like <clears throat> he wants to sell these as five, national TV specials to create a cultural moment. These artists of this caliber in Harlem, um, extraordinary, he, see, he sees the vision, right? He says, I wanna create a national moment out of this. Nobody bites. There's not a lot of networks. There's not a lot of options in 69 like, like there are today. There's, there's a handful of major networks. None of the networks naturally buy this and, and do that. He sells one TV special of the first weekend to a local CBS affiliate. So they air it late on a Saturday night, I think 10 or 11 o'clock on a Saturday night in July. Not a lot of TV, not a lot of eyeballs at then, right? Relative to the time. He <clears throat> theoretically sells a second episode to ABC a, a, a few weeks later. We, we did the research, it, we see the listing, but we don't see the review. So we don't know for a fact that it ever aired. Every, he, we had a copy of the CBS show we didn't have a copy of the ABC show. So I, I don't think it aired. So we, we weren't mm. able to confirm that it did air. Even if something's listed, doesn't mean it, it necessarily aired. But that's it. Then 10 years later, he digitizes the footage onto one inch, or he transfers a, a dub onto one inch reels. He tries to sell the idea again. No one really bites. Um, you know, he knows he has his footage and, and, and for years it just sort of lays dormant. Like, like, I think part of it is that he couldn't find a willing partner to, to, to purchase these specials from him. Also, probably he, he, what he had, he thought was really special. So it's not like if someone came to you and said, I'll give you 50 bucks for this, he's not going to do it for 50 bucks, right? right? Like, so, and that largely went on until the early 2000s. There's a, there's a, there's a, a, a archival company that learned of this footage, um, went to him and was like, you know, I want to license this stuff piecemeal. And, and, and I think Hal did the deal because he's like, well, I don't want to do nothing with this footage. Nothing really materialized out of that. I think some of the Nina performance or the, the, her set was licensed to a DVD at some point. But then uh, I think 2008-ish, um, this guy, Robert Fivalent, who's a co-producer on the film, mm -hmm. he, he had heard of this footage. And he went to Hal and he's like, listen, like this is, you know, I think, I think someone had tried to make a documentary at some point in the early 2000s, but they, they didn't get it off the ground. They didn't get financing. Hollywood is littered with projects that, you know, don't get off the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, but Robert, Robert came to Hal and he's like, look, I think I have the team and the experience in order to make this happen. Robert's journey with this begins in 2008, I think. So for him, it's been a long journey. Um, and, and, and he was sort of striking out uh, with people, I think until, I think really the, the, the catalyst was finding Questlove as the director. Mm. I think this black story um, being told by a black director, it, mm -hmm. it and, and Questlove in particular, right. everything clicked, right? So I, I don't think it's a lack of people wanting it to be exposed to over 50 years, but those two inch masters sat in his basement for 50 years. Like we, we digitized them fresh uh, in 2019. 
and they they hadn't been digitized like there was mold and glue was on them and so, so i think i think the the broader question is why was this event lost to history for 52 years right like right. the footage has a lot of has a lot of story to it but the event itself was lost for 52 years like no one except for really the people who went to the Harlem Cultural Festival knew that it happened. Uh, I think the New York Times did one or two stories about it, but not, they didn't treat it in the big thing that it was. And right. I, think, I think it's a combination of just, people don't feel that black history is American history, I think for a lot of those years. Mm. And I think, um, I don't think people realized how special it really was, right? If there's not a lot of things written about it and no one's seen the footage, then how are you really to know that this thing was that special? Man. Uh, and, and why this movie is, is so, so important. Uh, watched it with my mom last night, uh, who was born in 56 and she was just not stopped talking. Like this was us, this was everything. So I'm like, I will tell Joseph tomorrow that you thoroughly, the older black woman demographic you have, Listen, uh, you have satisfied. The demographic is, is hot for this movie. I really love that. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Um, kind of just staying on that idea of why this story hadn't been told previously and this idea of the moment. Um, in the last couple of years in America, there's definitely been, you know, a racial, racial reckoning um, that has brought us uh, the Black stories. Kind of uh, every streaming service has a weird Black stories channel now. Um, it's weird, do, right? It's very, I don't, you know, I don't look at, at this Friday as a part of my culture that needs to be shared on a yeah. special screen, but that's just me. Um, do you feel like uh, the things that have happened in the past couple of years, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the rush to corporations to want to kind of appear to be um, upholding Black stories, do you think that this movie kind of rode that wave a little bit, like in that wasn't present, let's say, 10 years ago? I mean, it's weird because we, we, you know, like I said, this story, this film has a long journey. Amir was signed in 2017. I started in 2018. That predates George Floyd's murder. Mm. It predates mm. Black Lives Matter's national consciousness, really. Mm. Um, I mean, what you're talking about is it's happened last year, right? Not even right. a couple of years, it's last year. Right. Um, I, I think even before that, before George Floyd's murder, triggered a sort of an awareness that you hadn't seen before. We knew there was a lot of parallels between what was happening in 69 and what's happening today. Mm. We, I think we as people knew that already. I think how it might've affected our film is that what we realized is we didn't have to be heavy handed in illustrating that. Mm. We didn't have to show you contemporary footage of police beating black residents in cities uh, in, in modern day to, for you to understand that it's still happening. We, we could show you it happening in 69 and you, the viewer, will make that connection yourself. The, the most illustrative scene of that is the moon landing, right? It's, it's this incredible scene where the day the moon lands, Stevie Wonder, Gladys Knight, uh, David Ruffin are, at, are performing at the Harlem Cultural Festival. Walter Cronkite throws to Bill Platt, CBS News reporter, and says he was at the festival and asked people there, what do you think of man landing on the moon? And their sentiment is, that's great for science, but how about some of that cash in Harlem? Yeah, this is yeah. more important. Then we cut to uh, that same, a, a different reporter at the Apollo Theater that night before Sly Stone and Red Fox show. 
asking people in the lobby, black residents of Harlem, what do you think of the moon landing? Why are you spending that money when there's so many problems here? That's my favorite scene in the movie. And then what's happening this week, last week, this month, you've got billionaires flying to the moon. It's like, or flying to space. It's like, well, why? So I think, I think really the only thing it affected for us is how we told the story. We just realized we didn't have to be heavy handed when you're seeing it on your TV. Um, You know, you're seeing the effects that are still, still there. So um, I think that's really the, probably the best answer I can give. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Certainly huge parallels, you know, with the whitey on the moon, you know what I mean? Um, We could have asked for better marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, you mentioned Questlove and I just want to take a brief second to like bring him up and, you know, can you give us sort of like your inside, uh, you know, scoop on, just the working process with Questlove and his development as, you know, a director. Um, how, how did that go and, and how was it? I mean, for me, I've known him for 25 years, right? Like how I met him is my first, I was a music journalist and my first cover story as a music journalist, which is sort of like, you know, the pinnacle achievement of your career where you, when you get your first cover story was for Rap Pages magazine. It was on the roots. It's 1996. It's their first cover story in America as a band. I get flown from the Bay where I was living at the time to Philly. I interview the group and I, and I love the roots and I interview them. I meet them, do the interview and something with Amir and I just clicked. And I think what it is is that he's a fan of music. He's an, he's an, he knew my byline. He knew, the reviews I had written, he's like, why do you give Commons album three and a half mics in the source? And it's like, like, he knew all that stuff. Like, 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 like any of you would, if we just were building on some rap shit. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was different for an artist. Like I was just like, Oh, he's just like the homie. I spent the next two days hanging out with him, just talking music and nerding out. And, 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 and we became friends. And, and I think working with the mirror all these years later, on his first film, he's not, he's not the director, you know, a lot of the director duties that a normal director would do was collaborative between us, but he, as a storyteller, he's a, he's a natural storyteller. He sees things in the room that nobody else can see. Um, and, and he's just, he still has that fan's heart, you know, Mm. he still has the same curiosity as a fan. He still, geeks out when Sonny Schrock is doing a guitar solo. He's like, we got to figure out a way to put that in the movie. Like, like he's just, he's, he's a genuine music lover, a genuine fan and uh, at heart. Nice. Um, I feel like this is kind of the, the public sentiment around this is that this film has been a little bit of a rehabilitation of the image of the fifth dimension. Are you aware of this narrative? (laughs) Well, let me say one more thing about Amir. Amir, uh, it uh, he's also mad annoying <laughs> <laughs> because the other thing about about Amir, and I'll get to your fifth dimension question. Yeah, yeah. The other thing about Amir is that, like, I kind of love this part of it. He talks in pop culture references, so he'll be like, "Oh no, this is like the ending of Purple Rain," and and like nobody in the room knows what he means. I seem to be one of the few people who knows what he means. Yes. If you look at the end of Purple Rain, there's like a little montage of every song on the album, right? And it's just like, and, or he'll like he told our editor, "I want to edit this like the Bomb Squad," 
And my editor, who's a musician, he I, like he's like, what? And like, I'm like, oh, it's layered, lots of samples, quick cuts. And he's like, OK, I get it. Yeah. Right? Well, but, noisy. Yeah. But Amir, like he he almost like he's um he's so proud of these references sometimes. Like I can tell when he's really trying to force something in. And it's just like, okay, man, come on. And then also just like, he has no time. Like it's, it's like, you know, I, Amir, I need this from you. And it takes like three days to schedule. So, um, but generally fun working with him. Um, fifth dimension. I don't know. Is there a rehab of their image going on? I feel like people thought they weren't cool. I, I myself among them. Like uh, I was gonna do a thing and put up all the records from the artists behind me, and I didn't <laughs> have a fifth dimension record to pull. Right? It's just not something I I I thought. And then they show how beautiful Marilyn McCoo was and how great their harmonies was, and you get to hear some of their stories, and they seemed a little cooler than they yeah. came off. And I think they're aware of that narrative. And so, that I mean, is not my greatest premise, but I have one more, which is I, that. Go ahead. <laughs> No, go ahead. Okay, so I also didn't realize how cool the pips were. Like, yeah. I, I, this is such an interesting, like, view into a world because there's just not a ton of footage of that time. And the the Motown artists, besides Stevie, who just, like, destroys my brain with his keyboard solo and drum solo, which yeah. those are high points of the film for any music nerd, but he's known as this polymath. But yeah. the polished performances of David Ruffin and then, in particular, Gladys Knight and the Pips, I just... I didn't think that the kind of synchronized Motown dancing was that cool, having grown up in hip hop. But right. seeing that pip, especially on the left, get down <laughs> like that and like just be so free and how much it, it did add to the performance. I just, I just, I don't know, man. I just like, it's not really a question. I just wanted to say like, it's so <laughs> great to see these people in their natural element playing for their audience and bringing their A game and how much music is in this music documentary is really a high point of it i mean it's interesting because fifth dimension i i you know i think you're right in the in that of a certain age unless you really grew up with it you don't you can't quite understand how popular they were right mm. for me marilyn mccoo was it was it was through solid gold yes. like I, I knew her and loved her through solid gold and so I was like, oh, I get a chance to, we get a chance to like meet Marilyn McCoo, like cool. And I think, I forget what, what, um, what movie it was, was it 40 year old version where they do age of Aquarius and let yes, the sunshine yeah. in as sort of like a stoner naked Paul Rudd romp. Right. Right. Like, like that's, that'll make you feel like it's sort of corny. Right. But like you see him on stage and, and that first song that they do mm -hmm. is great. It's got like a little jam to it. And then, and then you see how emotional she gets about performing that song. And then also the crazy story about the wallet. Like that's yeah. insane that their entire career success is based on fate. Like, and it's, it's but they're so, and they're so likable as a couple. It's almost like a interstitial out of when Harry met Sally, the way they sort of finish each other's sentences. Like it's cool. I really, I really, I really enjoyed uh, our time with them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I could see neither you or Nate has taken a ride on the beautiful balloon and you're worse for it. Uh, Fifth Dimension is dope, been dope. I'm glad they're getting they're getting their flowers and they got to talk about being labeled as a white group, which I, I think is was a fascinating uh, tidbit as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about what moments that didn't make the movie? Mm. Like, I know you, you've really got to 
you know, chop and be concise and certain things on the cutting room floor. This must be the greatest cutting room floor of all time. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you have one or two things. I, I mean, maybe if you can't divulge too much, but do you have one or two things that were like, we wish we could have saw that? So this is this is the mature answer, because <laughs> the mature answer is that I don't want to go too much into what's on the cutting room floor because I don't want people to feel bad. OK, right. Fair. Like that's like five years ago. That's not the answer I would give. But like <laughs> just that's the mature answer. But I will say that we put our favorite bits in the movie because that's sort of where you build from. Right. What are the best bits there? I think I wish there was more of the gospel that that professor Har professor uh, herman stevens and the and the and the and the voices of faith that performance is like 10 minutes long mm. of just like psych rock band guitar shit in the back and them just going dumb on stage mm -hmm. with a call and response and we cut to this woman who's losing her mind in the audience that happens like four times like it's it's really amazing the chambers brothers so we play Uptown with the Chambers Brothers, but they also did Time Has Come, which is like their, <sighs> right? Their like, hit. Yeah. Which yeah. is their hit, which is, again, here's a group that did us a song that you hear in every Vietnam era movie mm -hmm. ever. And I had no idea it was done by a black rock band. Yeah. And the, the single version of the song, which is like four minutes long, is very concise. But the album version and the live version of that song is 11 minutes long 12 minutes long it is and it's it's weird kraut rock in between <laughs> so one of the clips that didn't make the movie is the chambers brothers doing time has come with mm. just getting kraut rocky craft worky on the fucking guitars in in, in harlem with with homeboy wow. on the cowbell banging the cowbell every 30 seconds like so i would say that I, every artist does a full set right most artists most right. most artists did did full sets so there's obviously a lot to pull from but the song selection in the movie that did come out is partly based on our favorite performances but are also the ones that told the story the best well said thank you for that um we love summer of soul this is a hip-hop show but we felt it was important um to to discuss it's just it's just a great film and uh speaking of the auntie demographic my my parents and people i know from my past keep keep asking me have i seen it and i'm like yes i actually have seen it i watched it twice yeah. the day it came out but have yeah. you seen it and do you want to talk <laughs> about it and do you want to come over and listen to some records um i will but... say this, though it's funny because it's even it, it is it is a film about 69, right? But I feel like so many different entry points. Like Stevie Wonder is not little Stevie Wonder. He's not quite the genius he'll become in the 70s. Mm -hmm. But that keyboard solo with the clavinet and the wah-wah pedal on Shuby D is a hint of what he's about to become. Yeah. And that's really crazy. The The film is edited like a hip-hop. It, it, it is definitely edited in a, in a hip-hop yeah bomb squad style absolutely uh the name that first came to mind especially the cutting around the good the solo at the very beginning is doug prey right it's like a very doug prey um like using the the rhythm of it to to inform yeah. the cuts and I, I mean i'm hooked from that first second right it's just right. like it's a great way in as a hip-hop head to this music that's ostensibly about soul music but that's actually about i think what you're saying is like not forgetting uh this, yeah, this important just... thing that happened and hip-hop is so great at that of like 
drawing things through sampling or you know remix culture to like not letting things live in the past only and bringing them into a fresh audience and to recontextualize it right like our editor josh pearson is a genius um you know i think the the film really is about black history is american history yeah i think sampling and hip-hop is an incredible is 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 one of the most incredible examples of of the way that happens we definitely had a hip-hop sensibility making this film um, you know, then you have people like Roy Ayers, who is in Herbie Mann's band with Sonny Chirac and Miroslav Vitu, and it's like, what a band! What an and, incredible band! Yeah, you, know, you have you have Weldon Irvine as Nina Simone's musical director. Like the reason, the way you know that we have we're in faith to a larger story and not just like nerding out music wise is we show Weldon, but we don't break at that moment to talk about who Weldon is right because it just would have broken the flow of the story right yeah, but if, if you know you know right you know you know but it's like we wanted to show him right yeah. and so like it's yeah but it is it is definitely I think a lot of entry points for a lot of different people and tastes and generations absolutely so but thank, um, you all, thank you all for the kind words I, I'm I'm really proud of the movie I really I knew I knew we made a good movie but it's it's like man when people see and feel the things that you hope they see and feel there's nothing better yeah um it seems like it's happening on a pretty broad scale uh so i i think you guys should be very very proud of it it's an it's an excellent film uh before we let you go we wanted to kind of touch a little bit on your history with soul sides we've uh we're close to interviewing every member of the original soul sides crew we just have x left um we're big big soul sides heads that came along at a formative point in our lives and it's just music that means a lot to us and since we're kind of running out of time here I guess I just wanted to kind of say do you have a gift of gab story or is there anything you can share about kind of the early days of soul sides that would bring some resonance to that as he is like uh, tragically passed away so recently yeah it's that's a tough one like we started soul sides um it was it was Jeff Chang was sort of our Papa Zen guru. Uh, myself and Jeff were the two only two non-musicians in Soul Sides. It was X, Shadow, and Tom, me and Jeff. That was the original, and Benj, who was a friend of Tom's, who also tragically passed away many years ago. That was the core of Soul Sides. Shadow was a genius. We knew that already. We used to all congregate around Jeff's radio show, and then when he left, it was my radio show. And I, I recently just brought all my tapes back from the Bay to digitize all the times Gab and Latif and Tom would freestyle. But Shadow was the one where he was doing mixes for KML. He was getting the attention of Funkin' Klein and Hollywood Basic and doing mixes for Hollywood Basic. Shadow was the one where we were like, oh, we, we actually have a label. So the Soul Sides could become something, right? And we did SS01, which was first a cassette, then a 12 inch. It wasn't until and X was, X was like an incredible producer, just in the mold of like Pete Rock and Large Professor, just like, but it wasn't until X was like, oh yeah, my man Gab, he raps. And Gab moved from Pacoima to Davis, not to go to school because he wasn't in college, but we were all in college and he, he came up there. You've never met anyone who had a more pure love of rapping mm. and, and just a huge heart would kill you on the mic, destroy you. 
but but just as savage as he was on the mic, he was he was that kind-hearted and genuine and real and honest and loving off the mic. And when Gab came up, he and Tom clicked. We all loved him. Latif comes to school a year that same year. Latif and Gab form a bond that is just it's mad. It was magic. First time I've ever seen like magic happen. Mm. And that's Gab's presence was when I knew we actually were for real. His, his skill level and where he would just take shit was, was when you realize, and I, it wasn't like I wasn't exposed to a lot. I was writing for magazines at the time. Right. I had my hip hop show. I, I, I was starting to, I was, I was getting advanced cassettes of stuff in New York, like months before anyone else had it. Like I knew what the hip hop universe was mm. and I heard Gab and I was like, Oh, we're going to have a place in this. This is for real. It won't just be shadow making otherworldly beats and compositions. One time you can get lucky, but with someone like Gab in your arsenal, I was like, we actually, this is going to be for real. And that's a thing that I am so lucky to have been a part of and to witness it's very formative for me um you know my my time with soul sides uh did not end um in in the way i probably would have hoped um i still stayed in touch with with most everybody jeff is still my mentor um you know i still talk to latif a lot and to tom i hadn't talked to gab in a long time and latif remedied that last year not because there was beef it's just we grew apart right um, I had seen him a couple times in the early 2000s when they were playing New York, but like Gab and I spent like an hour and a half on the phone last year after Latif. He's like, oh, y'all, y'all should talk. You haven't talked. I've talked to each of you, but like talk. Mm. It was so incredible to talk to him after so long. He was still the same big hearted rap, feverish rap connoisseur. Like, you know, he, the the pandemic didn't get him down his illness didn't get him down he was still very optimistic about what was going to happen i was making fun of him for the grubhub commercials and you know like and it was a nice check for him but like i was just like you know i it just that one hurt it really hurt it's um you know it's it's the soul size was so formative to who i am now and uh you know it's and gab was such a huge part of that of making me, he made me fit in at a time when I didn't feel like I fit in mm. and, and, and to lose him um, to another plane is, I just try to keep it that in perspective is just like um, he, you know, he's, he's in a different place and he made this world better. Mm. Thank, thank, you, thank you for sharing that. Beautiful. And, thank uh, you. Appreciate that. Uh, Joseph, I, I want to just thank you for coming on the program as we we've, gushed effusively about summer of soul <laughs> but it it's it's all true facts uh the world loves it and you know we just wish you the best of success uh into the future man thank you so thank much you for coming on. thank you for having me thank you so much man peace all right guys that was our interview with joseph patel really want to thank him for taking time out of his incredibly cramped schedule he's uh doing press for this he's working on contact high um, the photo exhibition of contact sheets throughout hip-hop history, an incredible exhibition, book, soon-to-be film. Um, this guy is just extremely busy, and we ex- ex- really appreciate him sitting down with us for a moment. I want to give a special shout-out to a special person in my life, Lori Wekeser. 
um, an old friend who I've been reconnecting with a little bit through discussing Summer of Soul, um, kind of her generation's music, and um, just wanted to say hi. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking this out. Dad Bod Rap Pod, we're back with new episodes every Thursday, the occasional Monday. Um, great interview on Thursday, especially for fans of technical MCing. Keep an eye out for that. And just a lot of exciting stuff on the horizon for us. So this is Nate LeBlanc um, signing off for my compatriots, David Ma and Damone Carter. Dad Bod, Rap Pod. Stony.